All right, we are continuing our study through the book of James here on the listener's commentary on the New Testament. And James, unlike uh, so many of the other letters in the New Testament, is more like a collection of various little thoughts or sayings or ideas rather than like a logically argued case. So it's very unlike Paul's letters, for example, or even some of Peter's letters in that in that regard. And so in this session, we're going to look at two very distinct thoughts or two very distinct sections in the book of James. We're at the end of chapter 4. We're going to be in James 4, 11 through the end of the chapter in verse 17. But there are two very distinct sections here that deal with two very different topics, and we'll take them one at a time. The first appears in James 4, 11 and 12. So let's work our way down through that. The main topic in James 4, 11 through 12 is uh, the things we think and say, the words we use to describe other people, especially our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, when we run them down and degrade them. That is the main topic. The way this section in two short verses is organized is this. James has the main command, and the main command is don't speak against one another. And then coming out of that and what follows, he has three assertions about that command to help us understand why speaking against one another is so wrong and so bad. And then he ends the section with a penetrating rhetorical question to really get us just to pause and think about our behavior and what we're doing. All right, that's how this section is organized. Let's walk down through it and look at the details. So the main command is, do not speak against one another, my brethren. Um, and the idea of speaking against is this idea of running another down. Literally, speak against, katalalete uh, in Greek, is to talk another down, to run another person down. In other words, it it is this idea of degrading another person's value and worth in the things we say, whether we say those things out loud or whether we think them in our mind. And this idea seems to be an outgrowth of what James said in chapter 3, verse 9, about Christians praising God on one hand and then turning around and cursing their brothers and sisters on the other. It's that same idea. So James has sort of touched on this topic before earlier in the letter. And notice he says, do not speak against one another, which indicates the primary focus here is fellow Christians. Like there's backbiting and gossiping and running people down that happens between Christians. And James is saying, don't do that. It should not be that way. Then James gives his first of three assertions about why this is such a problem, why this is so wrong. Assertion number one is this. James says, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. Notice that James in this section has added the additional phrase or word to sort of capture and describe what he's talking about, the word judge. He says, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. And so this additional word helps clarify what James has in mind, particularly because James has already used this word and addressed judging in chapter 2, verse 4. And what we see in James 2, 4 is it's this idea of making distinctions. It's um, discriminating between people. Here, however, the, these distinctions and these discriminations now color our speech. Whether the speech in our own mind or the speech that comes out of our mouth, we're using words to describe and discriminate against people in a way that runs them down. 
So the ideas we entertain about people based on their status or on their financial standing or on their dress or on uh, our perception of their intelligence or their social views or their political views or their background or their education level, right? All the ideas we entertain about people based on those kinds of things so easily lead us to discriminate between people, categorize people, and then run people down or criticize people and speak negatively about them based on those sorts of distinctions and discriminations we make. The second thing to notice about this assertion is that what James says is, if you do that, if you speak against, run your brother down, and judge your brother, you speak against the law, and you judge the law. Um, how so? How does that work? Well, obviously, in the law, and I'm assuming that James is primarily thinking about the Old Testament law. He's a Jew writing to Jews. Those were their scriptures. That was the word of God to them and for them. And so, Obviously, in the Old Testament, you have the very specific command that is sort of the central command in our social relationships for God's people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Central command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that command is violated when you're running your brother down, when you're criticizing your brother or sister, when you're judging them and condemning them and blaming them and all that. You're not loving them, and so we're running down the law. We're judging the law. Um, James has already quoted this verse, love your neighbor as yourself, in chapter 2, verse 8, in the context of judging. And it's probably why James shifts to at the end of the section when he asks the question, he shifts to the word neighbor from the word brother because he has this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself in mind. How else are we running down the law and judging the law if we run down our brother and judge our brother? Well, the Old Testament has a number of instructions against slandering, which is running someone down. Um, it enjoins living together in harmony and unity. For example, Psalm 113, verse 1. Not only that, um, the Old Testament is very clear that all men are made in the image of God, and thus they have dignity and value and worth because of that. And so to slander and discriminate, therefore, not only violates a specific command of God's law, it actually goes against the entire worldview of the Old Testament and the rest of the scriptures. And thus, to run down your brother or sister, to judge your brother or sister, is to run down the law and to judge the law. Assertion number two that James makes is this. He says, now, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And so why is this such a problem? Well, to judge the law means you're, you're, you're not doing it, you're judging it. And the idea seems to be that to judge anyone necessarily elevates you over that person or over that thing. You stand over it, making judgments about it, making distinctions about it, decisions about what's good or bad, what's necessary and not necessary, what's right and wrong. And so if you're going to choose who you're going to love and who you're not going to love, if you're going to choose, I'm going to slander this person and I'm not going to slander that person, then you're making distinctions about the law instead of just submitting to it and doing it. And so... If you judge the law, you're not under it, and you aren't in submission to it. You're over it, deciding what to do and what not to do. And the end result is you'll obey the laws you like, you'll obey the laws you agree with, but the other ones you'll find some way to wiggle out from underneath, and that's not a person who does the law. And so if you judge your brother and run down the brother, well, you judge the law. And if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, you're a judge of it. 
And then assertion number three that James makes about this whole problem, he says, there is only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. And so uh, James doesn't come out and state who that lawgiver is, but it's implied the reference for the words lawgiver and judge is God. There's one lawgiver, God. There is one judge, God. And the assertion is thus that, that only God has the right and the ability to make moral law because it flows from his character and his wisdom. So only God has the right to determine and define moral law, and only God has the right to judge people on the basis of that law. There's only one person who is competent to, to create law and to to judge on the basis of that law, and that is God. And thus, when we're judging people and running them down, essentially what we're doing is we're trying to take God's place. We're trying to decide uh, what's appropriate to do. We're trying to decide the law on our own. We're going to judge people based on our opinions rather than submitting to God's law and doing what it says, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And so James ends verses 11 and 12, this first section that we're looking at in this session here, with a penetrating rhetorical question, really it's designed to put us in our place. And so after saying don't speak against one another and then giving these three assertions about that, James ends at the end of verse 12 by saying, but who are you who judges your neighbor? And the whole point of that question is really to put us in our place. In fact, the you in this question is actually singular. Why? Because James is getting very specific. It's not you all, it's you individual. Who are you to stand over the law? Who are you to assume God's place? Who are you to run down and judge and condemn and blame your neighbor? And in a very real sense, this um, section contrasts with the humility enjoined at the end of the last section in chapter 4, verse 10, where James uh, really said that humility is our proper stance before God and before people. And when we have that humility in place, we arrange ourselves under God's authority. We uh, recognize our need for him. We recognize our need for grace and we're humble. It's far less likely that we're actually going to be slandering our brother, judging our brother, condemning our brother and sister, and running them down. And the end result will be conflict will be minimized. And so as followers of Jesus, we need to listen to our king and realize he's in charge. What he says goes. Since he said, love your neighbor as yourself, we need to give up the practice of condemning and blaming and discriminating and judging and criticizing and running people down. Whether we do it out loud or we do it in our own mind, we need to become the kind of people who manages our relationships without these practices, who manages it on the basis of love and respect, not on judging, criticizing, condemning, and blaming. All right, that's the end of the first section. The second topic that James takes up, picks up in chapter 4, verse 13, and the real topic here is presumption in planning, specifically planning our future. So as we make our plans about our future, presumption in that planning is condemned. James uh, begins this section, verse 13, with almost like a little mini parable. A, he imagines a certain story, a businessman who's making plans. It reads like this. James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. So notice in verse 13, in this little mini parable, this individual, this businessman, he's making plans. 
his plan is in uh, the next day or so, he's going to travel to whatever city. James says, such and such a city. It's actually, literally in Greek, this city. So there's a specific city in mind. He has a specific plan. He's going to go to X city. He's going to set up shop and engage in this business. And he's confident he's going to make a profit. In verse 14, then, James offers his response to this imaginary character who's got such confidence in his planning. James's response in verse 14 reads, Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Notice James's response is really two things. You don't know the future. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what this afternoon holds or later this evening holds, right? Like you and I have, we can't see around the corner into the future. So you don't know the future. I don't know the future. That's one weakness with our firmly laid plans. The other weakness James's response points out is that our life is incredibly brief. Our life is incredibly transitory and changing. He compares it here to a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Think perhaps of the vapor over kind of uh, a kind of a marshy area in the morning that by late morning is gone. Or think of your breath even on a cold morning when you you blow out your breath and you can see your breath, but then it's just gone. That's the image is that your life is like that. It's just a vapor that's here for a brief moment and then it's gone. And this reflects a really very common and important biblical theme that our life is very, very brief and very, very transitory and we ultimately don't have control over it. So James's reply indicates that because of that, we ought to have a lot more circumspection and a lot more humility and a lot more open-handedness with our plans. And so here's what James recommends to us. Here's how we ought to make our plans according to James. James 4.15 says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. That should be really the mindset and the heart set in our planning. Notice that he says, uh, we should say, if the Lord wills. Why? Because only God knows the future, and God has veto power over that future. So if God wills, if God permits, if God allows, that's the idea. And not only that, even the way James words this is very intentional. In Greek, there are two different words for if. And depending on the grammatical construction with those words, it has a totally different sense. And so one word can mean well, since this is the case, and it is, so it's an if where there's a certain outcome, like the outcome is assured. And then there's the word if, where we're not sure what's going to happen. It's a true if, like if, and I'm not really sure what's going to happen. And it's that kind of if we have here. The Greek word is eon. Um, and it means if this is the case, and I'm not sure that it is. And so James is telling us that's the way we should plan. We should plan recognizing that we don't know the future. And so if this is the case, if the Lord wills, and it's really up to him. And so it's not presumption in our planning. It's not, Lord, here's my plans. This is what I want to do. This is what I want my life to look like. Please bless my plans. It's not that. It's, Lord, here's what I'm thinking about. And if you should so permit, this is what I would like to do. Do you feel the difference in those? Like, um, one is a very much humble sort of planning arranged under the veto power and the authority of the Lord who knows what's best for us and knows the future. The other is, I've got my plans and I want you to bless them. 
And James is saying, no, we're not doing that. We're asking not for the Lord's blessing on our, on our plans. We're asking for the Lord's will to be done with our plans. And so if the Lord wills, we shall live uh, and also do this or that. And this should not be like some sort of just perfunctory formality that we utter thoughtlessly because it's just what religious people are supposed to do. It really represents the attitude of the heart. And so whether we say the words or not, our heart should be God's the ultimate boss. He's in charge of everything. He knows what's best for my life. I can't see the future. And so humbly, I lay out my plans before him and say, this is what I'm thinking about doing, Lord. If you will it, it should be so. And we live our life that way. James goes on in verse 16 and says, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. And so if we, if we make our plans presumptuously, if we're confident of the outcome of our future, if we make all our plans and say, this is what my life is going to be like, and we have complete arrogance about that, James says that's evil. That's, that's an evil way to plan. That's a bad way to plan. It's arrogance. It doesn't re, uh, really respect the fact that God is in charge. We are not. God is in charge of the future, and God is in charge of our life, not us. And so we need to have a little more humility about our planning. And then James ends the section with really a kind of a stock truth that he applies to how we make our plans. And so notice he begins with therefore. So he's going to make a kind of a, a general statement here at the end, but in context it's applied to our planning. Therefore... To the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And so that's just a general truth um, about life that he applies to planning. And so, for example, forgiveness is right, and therefore to withhold forgiveness is a sin. Or praying is right, so to fail to pray is a sin, right? Like Doing good is is more than not doing bad. Like there's certain good things we need to do and we ought to do, and to not do them is to sin. And notice that, that you can, you can sin actively by doing wrong things, or as here, you can sin passively by not doing right things. And James is saying the right thing to do when it comes to thinking about your future and planning your future is to plan with humility and submission to God and God's authority. That's the right way to make your plans. And so if you don't plan that way, that's a sin. That's a sin. And so plan your future humbly arranged under the authority of God. And so the whole issue about planning here in James 4, 13 through 17 really revolves around God's sovereignty. A God-centered life recognizes and acknowledges that God is in charge. He is sovereign. He is the ultimate boss. And we are 100% absolutely dependent on him for everything. We are not self-sufficient. We're contingent beings. We owe everything to God, and our future ultimately is in his hands. And so we make our plans recognizing we don't have final control and final say over those things. And what James is really trying to do here is he's trying to get us to stop planning in pride, stop planning with ultimate certainty, to learn how to hold our plans loosely, open it. He's not trying to get us to not make plans. Notice that. 
it's fine to make plans. He actually says, you know, we should make some plans and say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. So planning isn't the problem. It's arrogance in our planning. And so James is trying to get us not to stop planning. He's trying to get us, when we make our plans, to hold them loosely with open hands, knowing that God is in charge. He's ruling the world, and we're going to have to trust him with the future. And so make your plans, but do so humbly recognizing the sovereignty of God.